one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. It's a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Do you uh, remember the first popular song that you heard? Like Not like the Itsy Bitsy Spider, that's the favorite song at our house right now, but uh, tied with Elmo's song. But what, what, do you remember the first popular song that you heard? What was it? Kung Fu Fighting. Kung Fu Fighting. Very good. Kung Fu Fighting. Anyone else? I hear something. Murmuring. Do you have it? Baby, baby. Very good. Last service, someone said, um, getting jiggy with it. Fine old song. Uh, mine, prepared to be impressed, was Ice Ice Baby. Excellent. I watched this controversial TV channel called MTV, and on it was Ice Ice Baby. And then the more I started to listen to popular music, the more I discovered that... Um, there's only about a handful of themes in most songs, and they just sort of get repeated over and over and over again. And in fact, it seems like the most prevalent theme, though not an Ice Ice Baby, uh, is the theme of love, the, the search for love, the elusiveness of love, the desire to love and to be loved in return, the fulfilling nature of love. As human beings, we have this interesting ability to love and to be loved, and yet we always seem to be longing for love. So where did this seemingly universal longing come from? For that matter, where does love itself come from? These are the questions we want to use to kind of get into our continued study of the book of 1 John. 1 John is a book of the Bible near the end of the Bible. It's written by John who walked with Jesus and we're four chapters in. Today we're going to do 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 21. There's five chapters in the book so you can probably guess what next week is. The grand conclusion of 1 John. Now, 1 John chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter of the Bible. You could write a verse on almost every, uh, write a sermon on almost every verse of 1 John chapter 4. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to hit a few highlights and encourage you to read the whole chapter uh, sometime during the week to gain more insight. The passage begins this way. It says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. And that's the Bible's answer to the question that popular music raised for me. Love comes from God. God is the author of love. The scripture says that human beings are created in God's image. And part of what it means to bear God's image is that we are able to love and to be loved in return. In much the same way that God is able to love and to be loved in return. The famous African minister, Augustine, around 400 A.D., uh, stated this idea that we all have a God-shaped void in our lives. He said it specifically that our souls are restless until we, they find their rest in God. Our souls are restless until we find our rest in God. And that we will be all out of sorts and we will try to fill that God-shaped void with all sorts of things that don't really fit until we reconnect to our Maker, reconnect to God who is the source of all love. And in doing so, we will realize that we are loved unconditionally by the God of the universe. 
In fact, throughout our whole passage for today, what Katie read for us earlier, throughout that whole passage, every time it says the word love, the corresponding Greek word is the word agape, A-G-A-P-E, agape, A-G-A-P-E. It will be on the final. You might want to write it down, A-G-A-P-E, agape. People didn't laugh. There's no final, okay? Okay. Agape. But agape, there's Greek words for all kinds of love, and they refer to different aspects of love. But the word agape refers specifically to that part of love that is unconditional. Unconditional love. So not I love you if you do these things, or I love you when you do these things, but I love you, period. I love you, period. That the love of God is unconditional. I love you, period. Now there are millions of reasons why the God of the universe should not love you and me unconditionally. It is transformative when we realize that in spite of those reasons, God still does. We read something very similar in verse 19, which says, We love because He first loved us. We love because God first loved us. As a high school student at my home church in Memphis, I served in the four-year-old class at the 815 service. I served every week, and Mr. Joe would come in every other week. Now, Mr. Joe loved to sing songs with the kids. Just between you and me, Mr. Joe could not sing a lick. That's an old southern expression that means Mr. Joe was not a good singer at all. So Mr. Joe could not sing a lick. And he was by far the more talented singer of the two teachers in the room. But there was this song he loved to do with the kids, and it went something like, We love because God first loved us. Those were the whole words, and you just sang them over and over and over again. So today, those four-year-olds are about to graduate from college. They are likely tone deaf, and they know that we love because God first loved us. And I'm thankful to all of you who make sure that our four-year-olds at Lake Forest Davidson, those at the 815 service, those at any service, are going to grow up to be tone deaf and to know that we love because God first loved us. What does God's love look like? Verse 9 says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So how does God most clearly shown us His love? He's done it through the life of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand the love of God, carefully study the life of Jesus Christ. If you are all out of sorts because how the God-shaped void in your life remains unfilled, turn your attention to Jesus Christ. Jesus came into the world so that we might live through Him. In other words, real life is available. Gushing fountains of life is available. Abundant and everlasting life is available, John says, through Jesus Christ. Not through you or me, our own power, or you or me just trying to make it up ourselves, but we trust Jesus to give it to us. The passage continues in verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
This is where this passage and Dee's God story begin to intersect. We talked about this a few weeks ago, Jesus as the atoning sacrifice, that throughout the Old Testament, God's people would offer sacrifices as part of asking for and receiving God's forgiveness. They would sacrifice an unblemished animal as part of making amends to God for their own sins and shortcomings. So forgiveness became tied in their minds to perfect sacrifices. And then in walks Jesus, who is described by the Bible as the once for all sacrifice. He lived a perfect life and then willingly, that's an important word, willingly offered himself to be a sacrifice, the sacrifice in our place to make atonement for the sins of the world. So that whoever claims Jesus as their sacrifice, everyone who trusts Jesus as the sacrifice offered in their place on their behalf because of their need will receive God's forgiveness. And thus will live abundant and everlasting life through Jesus. This is like the central message of the Christian faith. That through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. And thus you can live a life of character and a life of purpose on this earth as you wait with the secure hope of living forever with God after this earth. The point of the Christian faith is not that you can do great things for God. The point of the Christian faith is not how much you love God. The point of the Christian faith is how much God loves you and what God has already done for you through Jesus Christ. The point of the Christian faith is not what you and me can do for God. The point of the Christian faith is what God has already done for us through Jesus. Now, We can do great things for God. We can do great things for God's kingdom. But those things are a response to the unrepayable thing that God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection. So the foundational beauty of love, according to John, the foundational beauty of love is not that we love God, it's that God loves us. In fact, God loves us so profoundly that He became human. He walked among us as Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, died an unjust death, but then rose victorious from the grave, so that life and love and light have defeated death and hatred and darkness. The the war is over. The war is won. There are only skirmishes left. And the question is, which side are we on? God invites you and me to be on His side. And not just to be on His side, in fact, to be His children. Not because you've earned it or deserved it, but because Jesus has earned it and deserves it. And offers us the opportunity to share in his victory. So that when we do follow Jesus, when we do put our trust in Jesus, when we identify Jesus not just as that person's sacrifice, but as my sacrifice offered on my behalf, we are welcomed into God's family. And as a part of God's family, the passage points out at least two things that start to change about us. Two things that start to, where we start to see some movement in our lives. And so I'm going to highlight those two. 
This is number one, number one, number, 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 number one. It's found in verse 18. It says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So through siding with the victorious Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We are welcomed into God's family. God fills that God-shaped void in our lives. And so our hearts, our minds, our souls begin to marinate in God's unconditional love. Now, it will take a while for your heart, your mind, your soul to take on the flavor of what you're marinating in, but the cure has begun, the transformation has begun. This does begin to change us, and one of the ways it starts to change us is that God's perfect love starts to crowd out some of our fears. That's number one. God's perfect love starts to crowd out some of our fears. Now, we carry all sorts of fears, don't we? Like, I don't even have time to start listing them. That wouldn't take another sermon and a half. We carry around all kinds of fears. The point being that as we marinate in the perfect love of God, John is challenging us to, or to reminding us to challenge our fears. And to challenge our fears by saying, I am unconditionally loved by God. I am unconditionally loved by God. And so, yes, I may lose this job. This is me speaking hypothetically now. I may lose this job, but I am unconditionally loved by God. That relationship may get worse before it gets better, but I am unconditionally loved by God. The perfect love of God begins to crowd out some of our fears. And then number two, number two, number, 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 number two comes in verse 21. That he, God, has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, some of y'all are thinking, if John had known my brother and sister, he might have written that a little bit differently. But what John is really going for here is he's talking about other Christians. So that the second difference we begin to see is that as we marinate in God's unconditional love, we begin to cultivate in our lives a different sort of love for other Christians, specifically those in our church family, but in God's family generally, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, aren't Christians supposed to love all kinds of people, not just other Christians? The answer is yes. But this is John's point. Imagine, for instance, an athlete who comes to his or her coach one day and says, coach, I am no longer going to lift weights in the weight room. I'm using this illustration because, as you can tell, I I know a lot about lifting weights. Coach, I am no longer going to lift weights in the weight room because we don't play our games in the weight room. We play our games out on the field. We play our games out on the court. So I will no longer lift weights in the weight room. How would the coach respond to this? Would he or she be uh, stunned by the critical thinking skills of the player? No, the coach would say something like, 
in the weight room, you exercise muscles and strengthen muscles and build muscles that will help you when you're out on the field, out on the court. So quit philosophizing and go lift. That's kind of John's point. Quit philosophizing and go love. And for John, the weight room, the training room, is your church family. Because within your church family, everybody wants you to succeed. Everybody wants the best for you. You're all on the same team, and you're all being called to the same thing, which is to love others with the unconditional love that God has given to you. Now, none of us are doing that perfectly. We aren't really doing it well, but at least we're being called to the same thing. When you get out on the field, out on the court, not everybody is being called to that same thing. Not everybody wants what's best for you. So this is the training room. This is the weight room right here. So the point of a church family is not to be free of conflict. The point is to work through conflict well. Even if we don't always agree on all the incidentals, even if we don't always get everything that we want, As we marinate in the unconditional love of God, it begins to crowd out our fears. But it also causes us to look around these circles, the people sitting next to us, and see something different. This is where I begin to strengthen and build and hone the muscles that I get to use when I love people who are surrounding me day in and day out. It's the weight room. It's the safe spot to learn how to exercise the muscles of love. Loving as God loves us, even when we fall so far short of that. But as an athlete trains, we too are being called to train in how we love one another. So I love that. It's sort of a reminder that a church is not like, we're not like a business that just gives you like religious goods and services instead of like trinkets or whatever. We're a different kind of thing altogether. We're a place where we learn how to live the life that God has called us to live. Not for our own benefit, so that it might benefit the world around us. So as I wrap this thing up, here's my question. It starts with a statement, then it moves to a question. John keeps reiterating his simple message, which is believe in Jesus and love one another. Believe in Jesus could also be have faith in Jesus. It means the same thing. Believe in Jesus, love one another. Which of those two do you need to take to heart? I mean, like every chapter, the the takeaways are almost the same. He says, believe in love, believe in love, believe in love, believe in love. At some point you say, okay, I got it. I got it, John. I got it. Believe in love, believe in love. Are you a person who believes in Jesus? But you need to be reminded to love one another as one of the clearest outgrowths of your faith? Or are you someone who wants to be loved and wants to love well, and you need to remember that the foundation of being able to do that is faith in Jesus? That Jesus fills that God-shaped void in our lives, and so we don't keep looking to our friends or our family or our spouse or our job or our hobbies to, to be God for us. We let God be God for us so that everything else we can love in the right proportions. Believe in Jesus 
love one another. There's this beautiful old story that an early Christian minister named Jerome um, wrote about John. He had heard it through the grapevine, through other early Christians, uh, that, that when John was at a particular frail moment in his life, he was not able to walk to church. And so people from his church family would go and pick him up and carry him there. And as he would come and sort of embrace the people in his church family, and you have to imagine, this is a pretty big deal if John's part of your church, because John walked with Jesus. And now he's in the end of his life, he's very frail. He would come and embrace people and whisper in their ear, love one another. It was this simple but profound message that God had put deep into John's soul. And John wants it to go deep into our soul. Dear friends, it's simple but it's profound. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, or to listen to God. With whatever God's been stirring in your heart or in your mind, through the music, through the good words that Dee shared, through the words of Scripture, just spend time in silent prayer. Lord, I pray for our congregation. I pray that as we receive you and your perfect love into our lives, that it will begin to crowd out some of these fears that we carry so tightly. Lord, I pray that we would see those around us in these circles as friends. Lord, if there's conflict between us, that that we would, by the power of your Spirit, confront it and work through it well, so that we might be better able to love others. Lord, I pray during these final songs that you will impress upon us the place in our life where we need to take a next step, where we need to, in a new way, believe in Jesus or love one another. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship God with our voices, our offering, and our prayer requests. Amen.